So um, we are talking at the moment about why we worship. Um, and we have a crew of people in Blueprint who are part of this culture crew, which basically gets together every month and looks at the things we do in Blueprint and asks, why do we do those things? So, uh, for example, teaching, worship, service leading, Eucharist, all those things. Why do we do these things? And then after we've worked out why we do them, we ask, should we keep doing them? And then after that, we ask, what is the culture we have around this? And then what is the culture we want? So we're kind of going right back through the kind of the nuts and bolts of, uh, of this community and looking at why we do things. And one of the things we realised that I mentioned last week is that in some ways we have had like a little bit of a default culture around worship where I think sometimes we don't totally know what we're doing um, and we're not totally sure what that time is actually for. And it actually theologically and ecclesiologically, that means church, um, it has a reason that we do this stuff, that we stand and we raise our hands and we sing songs together and we take Eucharist together. There's actually a reason for these things. So at the moment, we're spending about 15 minutes a week getting our head around that um, and, uh, and making sure that we understand the full picture of this. And so we've kind of broken that down to three things, really. And the first of these, which... Um, which we'll look at next week, is around declaration, and declaration being the question of who is God? That when we worship, we worship to say who God is, what he has done. Jesus was born, died, rose again, has the victory, has overcome, and so whatever I come to church with, whatever baggage I come with, Christ is big enough for that. God is big enough for that. And we will declare to one another and declare to our city that he is good and he deserves all praise. It's probably the one we've been the worst at, I think. Um, and so that, that declaration is the first. Who is God? The second one of these is unity. And that is the who are we. That worship is a time where we get together and say, who are we as the family of God? We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. We are part of a history of church. We are part of a tradition. We have practices. We have language. We have things that we share together. And we are called to be salt and light to the world. So part of worship is us reminding each other what we believe and the commitments that we've made together. And then the final part of it is intimacy. Who am I? Which I talked about last week. Which is the idea that when we look upon the face of God, we realise how loving he, he is. We realise who we are, and that brings us to a deep place of repentance, not just in a sense of, um, I'm sinful, Lord, save me, although it is that sometimes, but also, I'm broken, Lord, heal me. Or, 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 I'm, um, or I'm, I'm lost, find me. That actually our encounter with God brings us to a place of knowing who we truly are and stripping off the false identities which the world has so often put on us. So these three things of declaration, unity, and intimacy, who is God, who are we, who am I? The one we're going to look at this week is around unity, that worship tells us who we are. See, I think one of the interesting things is Jesus left us unable to fulfill the witness of who he is in this world on our own. Like he left us unable for Scotty to ever be able to fully represent who Christ is. He left Abby unable to fully represent who Christ is. He left Alana unable to fully represent who Christ is. He said it would take all of us coming together to be his body. There was no way we could do it on our own. We would only be part if we tried to do it 
ourselves. So we are inadequate imitations of Christ on our own. Totally inadequate. Mother Teresa was an inadequate representation of Christ on her own. She becomes adequate in the body. Controversial, right? Oh my word. So really that makes me and Mother Teresa just the same. Oh, Ephesians 4 talks about how we are a body made up of many parts, how the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of thee. Acts 2 talks about the embodiment of this, that the early church sold everything they had so that everyone would have enough, that they shared meals together, they shared the scriptures together, they prayed together, and they grew deeper in maturity every day. And from this, the Anglican and the Catholic Church have, have, have strived for this thing that we call the common life together. The common life. And so ways that we have done that is we have a book of common prayer. Where there are prayers prayed in this book that are prayed all around the world. Do you know the average Anglican is a sub-Saharan woman in Africa in her 30s? That's the average Anglican. Being here, you'd think it was a white male in his 70s, but it's not. <laughs> that is the average Anglican, and she picks up prayers each day that are the same prayers we pick up. And you know what? 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000, 1,500 years ago, there are prayers we pray today that people prayed. And do you know, one of the things that really excites me is they reckon that the Anglican Eucharist is the most done ritual in the entire of human history. And so, from about 500 AD, when the Catholics were doing it, there has probably never been a moment in the world where the Eucharist was not being practiced. Isn't that kind of cool? So when we take the body and the blood, we pick up the baton from someone who picked it up 10 minutes before them, who picked it up 10 minutes before them, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years before that. And it's been handed down and down and down and down. And some of these words that we pray go back and back and back. You want to talk about Westerners who have no sense of lineage, heritage, and whakapapa? You want to find it. Get amongst Anglo-Catholic stuff. You'll find it pretty quick. We are in this beautiful process of handing down and knowing who we are. So we have a book of common prayer, and we practice our common union, our communion, our Eucharist. And we break this one bread and this one blood for Christ's one body, and we become one body because we know that we are an inadequate representation of Christ on our own. So I want to look quickly at how we form that common unity in worship. And the first thing we do is we come together and a common heart. Now, at the essence of worship historically, ecclesiologically, has been that we come together to affirm our beliefs together. You would not know that in the modern church. But why we worship is we come together to say, this is what we believe, people. This is what we're about. And so this would have gone way back to the, the Nicene Creed Council of Nicaea. They would have said things like, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. 
So we see that if you, if you read through that, at the earliest parts of our Christian worship was the declaration that there is only one God, there is only one Son of God, and He is the true God. And if that's been said in every congregational service for several hundred years, then that begins to shape us, right? If you wake up, you know this in your own mental health, if you wake up with the same negative self-talk every morning, <coughs> ten years later you believe it, well, I'm talking about the opposite, good self-talk except for the church, right? <laughs> but in a sense what we do when we worship is it's our good self-talk as a community. So our worship is a statement of belief that shapes us. So what we say each Sunday is important. If we say something that's been said for 500, 1,000, 1,500 years, it's going to powerfully shape us. If we say heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, we're going to be confused. Right? <laughs> An example in Blueprint would be, um, we've borrowed, Hamish wrote a, a piece of... Um, some music alongside the exhortation, an Anglican exhortation, which I think is actually from about 500 AD too. And I think we're going to sing this tonight. It says, Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, it is now and shall be forever. Amen. It's just like these two or three little sentences, but what's going on there? What are we stating about who we are and what we believe there? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We believe that we worship a Trinitarian God, that we worship a three-in-one God. Not everyone believes this. We say we believe this, that at the heart of who God is, is a community. And out of the love of that community, creation came, and now creation, us, are invited back to that table with the Trinity. All of that is in this line that we sing, and we affirm it week after week after week. And then we say, as it was in the beginning, it is now. That Trinitarian God, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was before anything we've ever known and is present with us right here in this moment. That's quite powerful, eh? That's not a little thing to declare. And then we say, and shall be forever, amen. This communal Trinitarian God was before all, is with us now, and will be after all. What we're saying there in this little couple of sentences is, is this God is so much bigger than whatever we bring into this room. Like that's a powerful statement, eh? So we worship so that we may be of one heart and one belief. We worship to be reminded of who and what we have committed our lives to. And from that one heart or that one belief, we form a common language. And we know that this is how cultures form, as a common language. You have that in the Tower of Babel, that when, when God brings down the Tower of Babel, he, he corrupts all the languages. And this, this culture that's tried to become greater than God is fragmented. So we begin to form a, a common language, and that's how we understand each other. The words we pray, the prayers we pray, the stories we tell create the culture in which we learn what it is to follow Jesus. So if I were to say to you, we'll see how this goes, if I were to say, um, the divine spirit dwells in us. And how do those people know that? Because people have said this thing for hundreds of years, and we have picked it up, and all I need is the first part of that sentence. And we say, what we're saying in that, the divine spirit dwells in us, God is within me. 
And everyone goes, praise God. Praise God that he's in Scotty. We really need him to be in Scotty. If we were to say, um, going from kind of an, an ancient liturgical, uh, Justin Duckworth, our bishop, would say that every church has a liturgy, whether they acknowledge it or not. Whether it's like the, the red leather bound liturgy, like an Anglican church has, or whether it's across the road and it's two fast songs, two slow songs, a giving message and then the teacher. It's all a liturgy, right? It's all a way of ordering ourselves and of common language. So if I were to say here... At Blueprint, we do good stories, and the reason we do good stories is because we believe. Someone? Sunday is the pinnacle of our Christian life. Yep. This Sunday is not the pinnacle of our Christian life, and the other six days of the week matter too. If I were to say to some people in this room, um, Blueprint is like the harakiki or the flax plant, what would come to mind? I can see faces who know, but a lot of. Alana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got anyone who knows. You got the inner shoots, and then you got the slightly more grown shoots, and then you got the leaves on the outside, and the inner shoots are the, the vulnerable people who are damaged and need healing and protection. And then as you grow, you grow slightly outward, and you're able to um, form more protection for the people in the middle. And then as you grow stronger and more healed, you go out and you, you're buffeted by the winds, but you're able to protect the people in the middle. Beautiful, right? So that's one word that some people in our community are able to draw all of that from, because we've built a language around our belief. So there is a reason why one person with a beautiful voice doesn't sing during worship and we just sit and listen, because this is not a performance, right? And I'm sure you've had a conversation with someone where you've been along to something and you go, that band, it wasn't really worship, eh? It was kind of a performance. And we feel uncomfortable about it because we're not here to hear one person's story. We are here to sing our together story. We are here to tell the story we are all participating in. We're speaking in one tongue because this is all of us believing one thing, declaring it together. It's not about what we individually need. We have a common heart that leads to a common language which becomes a common practice. And so a common practice is that out of a shared belief, we agree how we will respond to this God. We declare our belief and then we agree how we will respond to this God, not only by words, but by action. And so we say, let's all stand together and worship. And if we all stand together and worship, then we look like one body. But if five stand, and ten go to their knees, and then maybe follow it back, <laughs> and twenty don't move, then we go, are we one body? Are we moving as one body, or are we each here coming individually for our encounter with God? Or we come up, and we drink from the same cup, and we break the same bread and we sing in one voice and we believe that we become in that the body of Christ but the moment any of us decides that it's not quite for me then we cease to be that one body this is quite a bitter pill for our generation eh? so in worship we come together we remind each other of what we believe in common and what we have committed to 
We speak a common language and share the stories of God's goodness. And we respond with common rituals. Richard Raw says it really well. He says, God doesn't need our rituals, but we do. We do need rituals to be healthy and whole and to know how to reach out and touch this infinite God from our finite state. We speak a common language and share the stories of God's goodness and we respond with common rituals. And what this means, we're talking here about common prayer, about common union, about common worship. What this means is that tonight when we worship, our common heart may not quite align with your heart tonight. And our common language may not quite be the language that you would like to use if you were alone in your bedroom. And our common practice may not be the practice you would choose if it was totally comfortable to you. But we understand that we become the body of Christ together, not alone. So however deeply felt our own beliefs may be, however authentic we may think our own language is, however natural our practice may, be, may feel, we will only ever be a part of the body in our own preference. It's a challenging thought, eh? Here's an idea. Jesus died to restore us to relationship with him, rose again and commissioned us to be the people of God, the body of Christ, to be the church. In the same way, I think Jesus invites us in worship to die to our individual selves, our personal preference, our musical taste, our ideal expression, and to rise again as one people who become his body with one heart, one language, and one practice. I don't think that's a very popular word for our culture today, maybe. To a generation who has idolised their true and authentic selves in everything from fashion to food to music to diets to exercise to church, to a generation that's got used to controlling everything from temperature to television to communication all at the click of a button, Worship invites us to die to our own ideas. But the amazing thing, I think, is we don't just die to our own preference, but we actually rise again as the body of Christ. We rise again as one. And the amazing thing, as I said at the beginning of this, is that we do not rise as the 80 in this room, but we rise as those in sub-Saharan Africa. And we rise as those in China. And we rise as the persecuted church. And we rise with those 10 years before us, 100 years before us, 1,000 years before us, 1,500 years before us. And we say that the body of Christ coming back together through his followers is bigger than whatever I'm into right here in this five-year epoch right now. It's an interesting thought, eh? And within that, of course, as we spoke about last week, we look upon the face of God and something personal and something deep happens for us. But we are coming together as the body of Christ. Over time, over space, over boundaries. When we join, when we worship, we join something that transcends when we finish praising, someone else somewhere is praising God too. When we finish the Lord's Prayer, someone else somewhere is saying it too. When we finish communion, someone else somewhere is doing it too.
It's exciting. What I'm really saying here above all is that this thing of worship is so, so, so much bigger than each of us. And it is a joy that we get to lean in and participate in that. Why don't you close your eyes a second and we'll reflect. Father, we ask you to bring to mind one thought that um, you are drawing out of this. God, we pray that um, encouragement would come to the one who needs encouragement and conviction would come to the one who needs conviction. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to die to ourselves and to give you the praise that you deserve. We pray, Lord, courage to truly become one body, one people in you.